At this point, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And again, if you came in late and you don't have a copy of the notes, you might want to have them. You can get them on the table in the back in the foyer. I've given the title of the message is the centrality of the gospel and the end of the age. And in Matthew 24, verse 14, we will find the verse which is going to be the genesis for the entire message. Everything that I say is based upon something in Matthew 24, 14. Now, this, of course, is the Olivet Discourse. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Uh, very exciting stuff. Um, but I just want to concentrate on verse 14. After warning about wars and rumors of wars and men's hearts growing cold, etc., uh, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I have five points, the content of the proclamation, the urgency of the proclamation, the purpose of the proclamation, the extent of the proclamation, and the completion of the proclamation. Now, this word proclamation, by the way, comes from the Greek word, which basically means to make a public announcement, usually about religious truth. So that's what, we're, that's what Jesus is saying is going to be done. There's going to be a proclamation about a religious truth. Now, you'll notice in your notes that sometimes this gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's called, called the gospel of the kingdom of God. Based upon Matthew 19, 23, and 24, there's probably very little difference, if any, between those two when you look at how Jesus uses the word. So we're going to concentrate not on this word kingdom, but on this word gospel. Now, having said that, though, uh, Jesus said the, the kingdom had already come, but, he, but then he said it hasn't already come. He said it is already, but it is not yet. In other words, the kingdom came in some way with Jesus, but it's also going to be manifested in a much clearer, uh, fuller way in the future. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The whole, the whole uh, natural system will be changed so that in the animal world, there will not be all this killing and predatorial activity. And there'll be peace all over the planet. So the kingdom, in a sense, has come with Jesus, but in another sense, it has not come. But what I want to focus now is on this word, the gospel. It's uh, evangelion or euangelion, depending upon the Greek speaker who pronounces the word. Uh, but it means good news, which means there's been some bad news. You only, good, news is only good when you already had bad news. You find out something good. The news has changed. It's from bad to good. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. And that's what the gospel means in the New Testament. The bad news is that you and I through no fault or intention of our own, we had absolutely nothing to do with it. You and I are born on a planet where everyone is born a sinner. We are born with a nature that is hostile to God. We don't want to know God unless we're about to go bankrupt or we just heard we have cancer. Our intention is, God, stay away from me. Let me run my life. I am Mr. or Mrs. Independent, and that's the way we like it. We don't want to know God. We're born that way. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says we're children of wrath because of that. That's bad news. You ever have somebody yell at you really angry and mad and there's nothing you can do about it? You're trapped in a room or something. What do you want to do? You just want to disappear. Well, this is the way God feels about sinners. This is the way God feels about sin. It is offensive to him. It is so terrible 
that he decided to send his own son to take on the form of a man to live a perfect life in our place and then to die in our place. It's that terrible. Now think about that. We don't, look, we don't see it that bad. God does. And, and he sees perfectly. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's how bad sin is. And how many have you committed? How many have I committed in my life? How many did I commit today? How many will I commit before this day is over? All paid for by God's son going to the cross and dying in our place. That's the good news. Turn to, with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to give you the facts of the gospel. Because what I said might go over your head, might go right by you, especially if you're new to this, or maybe it's even your first time in a church. I want to explain to you what this good news is. First, the facts. Paul communicates the facts to the church at Corinth about what this gospel is in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance. It really is important what you're about to read. He's saying, focus, slow down, take a deep breath if you need to, but listen to this. Get this. This is big. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, etc. So these are the facts of the gospel. Paul is telling us, and I want to look at each, each one of these little segments of this individually. Christ died. Christ. Three people died on Calvary that day. Two of them were thieves. One of them was a perfect man who had never sinned. He was the perfect man that had been prophesied as far back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said he would send a deliverer to crush the head of the serpent. He was the one who was spoken about and prophesied about throughout the Old Testament. He was the anointed one. He was the only one who could pay for the sins of you and me and all the world of all time because he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the second person of the Trinity. The Logos that the Bible talks about. The Word. The, the Greeks called it the philosophical principle that controlled the universe. This is the one who left heaven, the Bible says, in 2,000 years ago, shook up the world by taking on the form of a man and humbled himself as a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. That's the Christ. That's the one who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And because of him, all of my sins, all of my iniquity, all of my wickedness, past, present, and future is paid for, wiped out. I am blameless and guiltless before Christ, and so are you if you've put your faith in Jesus alone. That's the good news. Christ died. Not that he almost died. Some people who disagree with the resurrection have come up with this different theories about, well, maybe he was really hurt bad on the cross, but he, he recovered somehow in the tomb, and then he pushed that stone away, and then he crawled out and he appeared before his apostles, and they said, oh, how wonderful. No way in the world anybody could survive a Roman crucifixion. In fact, the testimony is not just from the Christians that Jesus died, but the Jewish people admit in the Talmud that Jesus died. The Romans who killed him, Tacitus and, and uh, uh, Herodotus, Tacitus and one other guy, I think I can't think of his name, but Greek Roman historians of the first and second century said that Jesus died. No doubt about it. Jesus died. He had to die. 
because the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay that penalty that I was facing and that you were facing if you've put Christ first in your life, if you've been born again, but which you are still facing if you are ignoring Jesus' call to you. So please, if you're here and you've been here coming for some time and you made, you made decisions to come here, but you haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus, to give your life to him, please, today is the day because you don't know about tomorrow. No one does. We just heard about a 34-year-old missionary friend of Aaron in Bangkok, Thailand, who's got a brain tumor. Don't know if he's going to live. Nobody knows. Just because you're young and healthy and beautiful or handsome and you work out five times a week doesn't mean you're going to make it to tomorrow. Christ died, verse, verse 3 says, for our sins. You've heard the word atonement, big word. It means in our place. Christ died in our place. He didn't die for his own sins. Hebrews chapter 7, 27, 28 says he was sinless. 1 John 3, 5 says he was sinless. 1 Peter 2, 22 says he was sinless. There's no deceit in his mouth. He never did anything wrong. And yet he willingly went to the cross for you and me. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 9. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was raised on the third day. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is about that. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, the rest of it is irrelevant. He was raised from the dead for our justification. I think that's Romans three twenty five. Raised from the dead. God specifically had the raising of his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead so that he could justify you and me. So he could declare you and me righteous. Not just good people. Righteous with the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You can't get more righteous than that. How good's the good news? The good news is that you are considered to have the righteousness of God if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the facts of the gospel. But how do you actually make that work for you? How do you apply that gospel to you? Well, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, it says, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And, and, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Greek word, metanoia. It simply means to have a change of mind. But not just any kind of change of mind. Like instead of liking the Phillies, I'm going to like the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's a change of mind which actually produces a change in behavior. It's I'm walking this way, the way of the world. I hear about Christ and I make a decision to turn from my way and turn to God. That's repentance. But that's not enough. Take a look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, verse 14 and 15. It says that after John was arrested, and in most of the world, this is usually what happens when you preach the gospel. We've been living in a big bubble here in America for the last 200 years. It looks like that's about to change. Normally, you, gotta, you, you risk being arrested. You risk bad things happening to you. That's, that's the way it is in much of the world, always has been. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Believe that Christ died for your sins on that cross 
and was buried and was raised again from the dead. Believe that. But not just intellectually. Believe it in your heart. A belief that motivates you. A belief that enables you to say, God, I believe your son died for me. I believe he died in my place. And I'm asking you now to forgive me of my sins on the basis of your, what your son Jesus did. And God will do that. God will do that. You make Jesus Lord of your life, you agree to follow him and God will do that. And you know what else will happen? You'll get born again. A really, really interesting term. The Holy Spirit of God will do something from heaven and change you and actually give you a new heart and a new spirit and you'll be a different person. It happened to me 40 years ago. The people who knew me after I got born again said, who stole me? Who stole John? I was a different person. I've never been able to to be the same. It's like some big hand reached out from the sky and grabbed me. I'm unable to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that. Do you? I've been born again. So if you repent and believe in the gospel, believe in what those facts are and believe that they apply to you and ask God to save you, he will. And you'll be born again. And you'll be as excited about this gospel as I am. So the first point is the content of the proclamation. And it's the gospel that Jesus uh, preached from village to village. It's the gospel that all the apostles preached. It's the gospel that people have been preaching for 2,000 years, which is why you and I got saved. Somebody told you about what Jesus did. Now, the second point of the proclamation is found in Matthew 24, verse 14. And that's the urgency. Now, I see the urgency in the part where Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. The parallel passage for this is Mark chapter 13. I don't know if that's in your notes. You might want to write that down. But Mark chapter 13, verse 10. And this is good. Theologically, this is really sweet stuff. Matthew 13, 10. Mark records it, or Mark records uh, Matthew, or Mark 13, 10 as the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Now that's a D, the word is D-E-I, the Greek word D-E-I. It's a word of divine necessity. Luke uses this, Mark uses this, Matthew uses this to indicate that there's something that according to God's plan, it must happen. There's no way in the world this cannot happen. This must happen. So Jesus is saying in this passage that the gospel must be proclaimed. There's an urgency here. We saw it in the Old Testament when God is talking to Ezekiel. And he says, Ezekiel, you're a watchman on the wall. And like any watchman, you see the sword coming, you have an obligation to warn people. If you warn them and they don't listen, their blood is on their own hands. But Ezekiel, if you see the sword coming and you don't warn them, and they die, I will, hold their, I will hold you accountable for their blood. That's Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 33. Not just an Old Testament passage that's no longer important or doesn't apply now. Paul uses it in Acts 18.6 when he's at Corinth, and he uses it again in Acts 20.24 when he says, I am free from the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare the entire counsel of God. No one else is able to say that except Paul. Or Jesus, of course. But no mere human being is able to say that. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? 
We're all going to be accountable for whether or not we shared the gospel. We are all watchmen on the wall. That's just not Ezekiel. That's why it shows up in the New Testament. That's why it shows up with Paul saying it. You look what Paul said in Acts 24. He says, I believe everything that was written in the Old Testament by the prophets. Do you? Do I? Is it changing my life? The urgency of the proclamation. Now, all the research and the Pew research things that I read about nowadays indicates that the church in America is getting weaker, not stronger. I don't think that's this church. I hope not. But you don't stay warm unless you try to stay warm. Don't think you can just walk away from the church and stay warm and stay as strong as you are. It doesn't happen that way. Take Take a coal out of the fire. What happens? Pretty soon it grows cold. Stick with your church. Don't forsake the assembling together of the brethren as a manner of some is, especially as you see the day approaching. 200 years, was, 200 years ago, there's a really good example of the urgency and how it should impact our life. You may have heard of Adoniram Judson, believed to be the first, one of the first missionaries from America to go to Asia. Ends up in Myanmar. But in 1812, he fell in love with a uh, young girl named Anne Hazeltine uh, up in Massachusetts. And uh, he wrote her a letter and said, you know, I'd really like to be your suitor. And Anne didn't answer it for a few days. And then she said, well, you've got to talk to my dad. So Adoniram Judson wrote a letter to Anne Hazeltine's dad. And this is what he said. I have now to ask Mr. Hazeltine whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean and the fatal influence of the southern climate of India to every kind of want and distress to degradation insult persecution and perhaps even a violent death Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who has left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Mr. Hazeltine said yes. And Anne left with Adoniram Judson, went to, ended up in Myanmar, died there 14 years later after enduring all kinds of hardships, just as prophesied by Adoniram Judson. There is an urgency, and the urgency is all about the, the purpose of this proclamation. The purpose of proclaiming the gospel, we also find in Matthew 24, verse 14. The purpose in proclaiming the gospel, it says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. Or as a witness, if you have a KJV. Greek word, martyrion. What's a witness? You've seen all enough court shows. Your Honor, I call my next witness to be. They get up and they testify that I saw him kill Mr. Brown or no, I didn't see him there at all. And their witness is either accepted or rejected by the judge or the jury, depending what the procedure is at that time. 
So what, Paul, what Jesus is saying here is that we have an obligation to proclaim as a testimony. We are giving a testimony about something that we are familiar with. This is firsthand. I know what happened to me, or as the blind man said in John chapter 9, I was blind, but now I see. That's the best, te- best testimony you could possibly give is your own testimony because I can't challenge your own testimony. What happened to you happened to you. I can't, I can't refute that. No one can refute that. And you will find that even most people out there in the non-religious world, the nuns, they'll, they'll agree with that. I, you know, I can't argue with what happened to you. It's a testimony. But we have a testimony, and the purpose of our testimony is to people to accept the gospel. That's what we want them to do. But not everybody accepts it. There are people who reject it. And Paul talks about the theological issue involved in the acceptance or the rejection of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you please turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verse 14 and 15. 14, 15, and 16. Second Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Paul says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Don't forget that, brothers and sisters. Even if some people are saying no, even if they're not responding to the gospel, you are still in a triumphal procession because you are in Christ, you are following him, and you are obeying him. And through us, this is God, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. For we are the aroma of Christ of God, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to to life. You see, the gospel has a spiritual odor to it. To those who find the good news reason to rejoice, it's a sweet odor. The Greek word is iodia. It's, it's a smell, kind of like a celestial perfume of some kind. But to those who reject the gospel, Paul says it's got a fragrance, but that fragrance is from death to death. Think rotten eggs, sewers, dead things. The gospel is offensive. It's insulting. It's vexing. It's irritating. It's even repulsive. You can see that in the comments of some of the people who respond to Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. What happens when you reject the gospel? There's kind of like a spiritual fragrance emitted. Whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.36. There are cosmic implications when a sinner rejects Christ. You know what happens when you reject Christ? It actually becomes more difficult for you to, to accept him the next time. Just look at Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Your heart becomes hard. It becomes darkened. You're not interested. You're less interested. That's what happens when you reject Christ. There's an aroma that happens and you don't like it so you take it out on the messenger that's why they said the things about Christ and took out reacted to Jesus the way they did Matthew 15:12 Jesus was telling them why do you transgress the commandments of God with the commandments of men and it says the disciples came and said to him do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying 
They didn't like what Jesus was saying. It was offensive to them. Luke 4.28 says when he was in the synagogue, when everybody was in the synagogue, and, and he said, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. They were filled with wrath. Acts 5.33, when the apostles were preaching, it says they were furious and plotted to kill them. In Acts 7.54, when Stephen was preaching, it says they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed their teeth at him. That's the unrestrained response to the gospel of someone who does not want to follow Christ. And they get harder and harder, and they get meaner, and they get meaner, and they become more lawless, until lawlessness abounds. It's a testimony. Our job is to proclaim. We can't make them be born again. I wish we could. I wish I had a magic wand. Boom, born again. Boom, born again. doesn't work that way. You get the most opposition from people in your own family. You haven't found that to be true. Be on your knees praising God because most of us have found that to be true. The extent of the proclamation, point number four. How far is it supposed to go? Again, I get, the, I get this point from Matthew 24, verse 14. You see, the reason I do, I do this, I want you to see where everything that I'm saying comes from. That's how you learn what God is all about. That's how you can protect yourself against false prophets. Show me the verse, sir. Show me the verse in context. Matthew 24, verse 14, the extent of the proclamation, I get that from two phrases, throughout the whole world and to all nations. Throughout the whole world is basically the, all the physical locations on the earth, North Pole, South Pole, the mountains, the valleys, the oceans, the rivers, the deserts, the jungles, everywhere, all those physical places. That's where the gospel has to be taken. Because there's going to be people there. But it also has to be taken to all nations. And nations is the Greek word ethnos. And it means a a people group, a political group, uh, usually a group of people that are united by kinship or culture or language or traditions of some kind. So you got to get all them too. But you know that you can go every place in the world with the gospel and still be totally ineffective it's easy to think of why well maybe they speak a different language that's right but even if you speak the same language you can still be blocked from sharing the gospel with them because of culture we're very sensitive to our cultures you know i i got my culture i grew up in this i'm not like i don't care for that culture you're not willing to listen to people simply because of culture people are like that you and me are like that to some degree everybody's like that to a little a little bit As Christians, though, we have to overcome that. He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to earth because their culture or their traditions are different than me. He was ready to die. 1 John 3.16 says, you and I should be ready to die also. 1 John 3.16, look it up. It's there. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Psalm 87, verse 4 is very, very interesting because it shows how much God is interested in the different places from which those who are born again come. Psalm 87, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. This is fascinating. Verse 4 through verse 6. Among those who know me, 
This is God speaking. Among those who know me, I, that's God, mention Rahab and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. I'm not sure exactly what that means. What does it mean that the Lord is recording and he's registering? Does he have a book up there? At the, end of t- at the end of this age, he opens the books in Revelation chapter 20 and he judges people out of the books. And if your name isn't in this one special book, you're cast into the eternal fire. So I'm a simple guy. I take it as a book. God's got a book. He's registering names. He's mentioning people. But he wants you to know that his concern for where people are from, for all the nations of the world, is, is, is real and certain. And he says, among verse 4, among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Rahab, another name for Egypt. Babylon, to the, Egypt, by the way, was to the south of Israel. Babylon, the destroyer of the nation of Israel and the destroyer of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C., to the east of Israel. Philistia, the Philistines, read about all about them in Judges and, and the first few chapters of Samuel. Phil, Philistia was to the west of Israel. Tyre, commercial giant, known for its arrogance to the north of Israel. And Cush, believed to most likely to be Ethiopia in Africa, so far away that it probably just symbolizes all the other nations of the world. So God is concerned about all the different people groups all over the world. Now, where on the compass you're looking, that's God is concerned about them. He really wants to reach them. In fact, he has ordained and predestined from the foundation of the world a people that will be called out from among that people group. Every unreached people group, God has his eye on them. God has his heart on them. And brothers and sisters, I submit, so should we. Point number five. The completion of the proclamation. I get that out of Jesus' words. Matthew 24, verse 14 again. He says, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. There's going to be an end to this proclamation. This proclamation that Jesus is talking about, it's been happening for 2,000 years, untold millions. It's going to be wonderful to meet the other millions of people for the last 2,000 years who have tried to spread the gospel and has really been as concerned about it as you are, and I pray every one of you is. But Jesus says there is an end coming, and then the end will come. The end of what? The end of Jerusalem? The end of the nation of Israel? The end of the temple? The end of the world? Fortunately, Jesus has spoken about this subject, the end, in Matthew 24, 24, uh, 24, 14, he has spoken about it in Matthew 13. And I'd like you to turn now to Matthew 13, and you'll see something very interesting. The question that Jesus is responding to, please turn to Matthew 13, don't go back to Matthew 24. The, the, The question that Jesus is responding to is in Matthew 24, verse 3, where he is asked by his disciples. He's just said the temple's going to be destroyed. They say, tell me, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Jesus is asking, they are asking Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That is the question that he is answering. What, what, what are the signs of the end of the age? And, he, and he's going to talk about that in two parables in Matthew 13. The first one is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Begins in Matthew 13, verse 24. Also known as the parable of the, the weeds in modern translations. But it's about a man who goes and sows good seed in his field. Then his enemy comes and sows bad seed. And the the servants of the master come and they say, Master, uh, verse 27, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds or the tares, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Mark that word. Pay attention to that word, harvest. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, another key word, the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is one of those parables really easy to understand because Jesus is going to tell us exactly what it means. Starting around verse 38, verse 37. Jesus said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's obviously Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. That's us, all Christians. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Those who have rejected Christ, not interested in following Christ. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, the harvest... Remember the harvest? Jesus said before in verse 30 that when the harvest came, the reapers would go out and bind up the wheat and would burn it. So in verse 39, Jesus says the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So at the end of the age, the angels are going to go out. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man, verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sun and all lawbreakers, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. So Jesus is saying at the end, the end of the age is characterized by this explosion in angelic activity. They're going to gather up the weeds and burn them. And they're also going to gather up the elect, as we see in Matthew 24, verse 39 through 31. So the, the end of this age is characterized by angelic activity. Now, he does this, explains the same thing again. It's very important. Down in the parable of the net, starting in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So same thing's happening as the angels, except now it's man in a fishing net. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place that there will be, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Matthew 24, verse 29 It says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So the seven-year tribulation is over. 
But immediately after it's over, whatever day and hour and second that is, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the end, and then the end will come that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, verse 14, is the end of the age. And this tells us that the end of the age is at the end of the tribulation period and that short time immediately afterwards when Jesus sends forth his angels. So the gospel will be proclaimed, and it's going to be continue to be proclaimed, but there's a problem developing because we think of ourselves as doing it. We think of the church as doing this until the end of the age doesn't appear to be what scripture is saying what scripture is telling us is that remember the two witnesses in revelation chapter 11 god raises up incredible witnesses have power to bring down fire from heaven anybody opposes them they kill them except when revelation chapter 11 verse 7 god gives power to the antichrist to kill the two witnesses so that incredible witness happening in jerusalem is is done and this is, of course, sometime between the middle and the, and the end of that seven-year period. No more two witnesses. Well, how about all the tribulation saints? How about all the people who get saved? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 tells us an enormous number of people get saved during that time. Now, most of them die as martyrs, but apparently some do survive because in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7... God, who had given power to the Antichrist to kill the two witnesses, also gives power to the Antichrist to crush the, tri- the tribulation saints. Revelation 13, verse 7, and it was allowed, the beast was allowed by God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. See, things are so horrible during the tribulation period, and the Antichrist is so powerful, and then God allows the Antichrist to conquer the tribulation saints at that time, there's, there's no witness left. The Christians, who are still, the, the Christians who are still there are in caves. They're, they're half starved to death. They don't have any water. There's no medical, there's no hospitals. There's no infrastructure. It's an incredibly bad time. Jesus said there never was a time like this before and never will be again. And the witness is destroyed. But what about those few people left who all, after all of this, God has been working on their hearts and now they're ready to come to Christ. How do they hear the gospel? It won't be from the two witnesses. It won't be from the tribulation saints. They're done. They're conquered. God has an answer. It's an angel. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. And that's the Greek word which means at the highest point in the atmosphere, the zenith or the apex, where the sun is at high noon, God sends an angel to proclaim an eternal gospel to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. That's the language of Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9 again. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. God is still interested and he's interested in every one of them. He hasn't lost any of his enthusiasm for bringing a people out for his son. Now this is 
not a human being that can be killed. It's not an airplane that can be shot down by the most modern of Russian anti-aircraft missiles. It's not a radio transmission that can be interfered with. It's not a track that can be burned or an iPhone that you can crush. It's an angel. One of them killed 175,000 Assyrians back in the Old Testament. One of them. Because he got all the power of God behind them. And he's proclaiming the gospel. And he says, he says he's doing it with a loud voice. That word for loud is the Greek word mega. Like megaphone. It is being proclaimed. It is clear. It is unadulterated. It is unhindered. It is the pure voice of an angelic sinless being. Proclaiming the gospel of God to anyone left on this earth. Now brothers and sisters. If God is going to go to that extreme end to proclaim the gospel. Shouldn't we be manifesting some of the enthusiasm that took that first church and enabled them to turn the world upside down? It reminds me of the passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision. He sees the Lord in the temple. John chapter 12 tells us that Jesus in the Old Testament is a Christophany. And the seraphim with six wings, etc. And he's, they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And... Isaiah is so blown away by it. But what happens? He, he says, woe well unto me because I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a, uh, an unclean nation. He's ready to give up. He knows he's done. But then an angel flies from the temple, takes a coal and touches his tongue, symbolic of the salvation and the justification that we have through Christ. And then he's, his mind is opened up and he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. What could be more exciting than having God send you to people who don't know Jesus? Can you get out of this this crippling vision that we get here in America that it's all about us and make it all about them? God did. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the way your word examines us and searches us and sifts us and makes us confront ourselves in the light of the gospel of the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone here and myself. Enable us, O Lord, to resist the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things and to be determined as Paul was to complete our ministries that you have given us, Lord. Despite whatever affliction might come our way, whatever threats might come our way, and even death, Lord, because death is far better. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. It's far better than what's here. Lord, have mercy upon us. Cause us to grow in Christ. Cause this church to love each other more than ever, Lord. And I pray, Lord, through all the persecutions that are coming down the road, this church will stand strong. I pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.